0: Hosea, chapter 11 is where we'll start, but we'll be mainly in 12 and 13 this morning. Questions will be up on the screen. Hopefully, you'll be able to see them around me. They'll be up for a little bit until we until we uh, start reading until we start reading the the passage. But Hosea 12 and 13 is what we're gonna we're gonna cover. This morning, which means we are coming to an end on our, our, uh, our time in Hosea. We actually have one more week in, in Hosea that we will be together and finishing chapter 14, and that'll wrap us up uh, with, with Hosea. Um, so the question's on the screen. Uh, I'll try to stay out of the way a little bit uh, for you. Um, one of my uh, favorite subjects in school is, uh, or was, uh, was was history? Does anybody else does anybody else enjoy history? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed history uh, quite a bit. Um, one of my, my favorite one of my favorite subjects. I, I love reading history. I love listening about history. So here in the lectures, uh, I really I really enjoyed. Uh, I love reading. They in elementary school for some reason they called it social studies, which is weird. Uh, they should just call it history because that's what it is. And I, I loved learning about American history. That was so intriguing to me, uh, the, the most. Uh, and uh, I loved the, the Civil War, the Revolution, uh, World War II, World War One, things like that. Of course, being being a guy, I just kind of gravitated toward those things as as a, as a young boy. And, and I could easily imagine myself being a part of history, being a, being a part of those things. And 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 I remember when. Um, when we finally got cable, right? So there's a generation that you know we didn't have cable, and now there's another generation where like my kids don't even know what cable is. Um, uh, I remember when we got cable, and and then and that part of that package was is we got the History Channel, and and it was like history all the time. Um, some of it was pretty lousy, but uh, but we got history all the time, and, and my mind was just blown as a as, as a kid, and I could start seeing these stories come to life, in the video, and, the, and, and these, these people these, that, that seemingly knew what they were talking about when, when talking, about the, talking about history, the, the stories of, of triumph, the stories of disaster and perseverance and treachery, um, good versus evil, achievement and loss, war and peace. History was a, a never-ending story that was real that I could put myself into and 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 see that these were real people just like me, but just at different times and 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 different circumstances. What's the what's the old saying when it comes to to studying history, right? You don't study history, you're, you're, you're doomed to repeat it or bound or whatever it is. You know, you're 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 doomed to repeat it. And and that's why it, it's a discipline that needs to, or academic discipline that needs to continue to 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 be taught. Um, and throughout school, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it when I went to college. I uh, studied the, a lot of general history in, in college, some world history, got into church history as well. In the seminary, dove, dove a lot more into church history and, and just thoroughly in, in, enjoyed it and was so thankful to see so much to put context on, on so many things and where we are as, as, as a people today. And I didn't want to be one of those people that were doomed to repeat the failures and the mistakes of the past. I wanted to learn something. And so in Hosea 12, Hosea 12 and 13, we're going to look back in history. In fact, that's the that's the recalling that's brought in in history is 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 it looks back at Israel in three different particular times, three very particular times where where we can gain lessons from history and God uses these 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 stories of the Old Testament to, as, as object lessons to point to this is what you should learn this is why you should repent and then for us these are lessons that we can learn that, that give us valuable gospel lessons of humility and how they highlight the grace of god and so that brings me to that word the grace of god if we can if we can mention one word where the where the gospel centers around and definitely it's Christ but but that one word would be would be grace the free and unmerited unearned and I have in parentheses here unearnable grace of God the love of God the free unmerited unearnable and unearned favor and love of God That is grace. Last week we called this this kind of love unconditional. We called it unconditional. For we know that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And it's not of our own doing, but rather it is a gift of God. Grace is a gift. It's not a result of work, so it's unearnable. You can't go to your job and earn grace. You can't come to church and earn grace. You can't be good and earn grace. You can't read your Bible and earn grace. You can't pray enough to earn grace. It is unearnable. It is given by God. And it's given by God as a gift so that no one can boast. We have nothing to boast in. And it's by grace that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We talked to this in Ephesians. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world into salvation. By grace we have been called. By grace we have been saved. And by grace we are being sanctified. And lastly, by grace we are being sustained. Grace is everything. So if we wanted to shut down everything now and some of you all may, oh, that's a good idea, let's do it. Let's shut down now, let's eat, because that's food, whatever's back there smells good. We can shut down right here because this is the point. That, that grace is sanctifying you and grace is uh, uh, sustaining you. And so we depend solely on grace for everything. That's why in 1 John, not 1 John, we talked read right 1 John this morning, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 16, it says this, it says, For from His Fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Grace isn't something that just saves us, but grace is what is sustaining us. That we have received grace upon grace upon grace and upon grace. Grace is everything. More and more we're we given grace. We need grace. And we need grace to be transformed into Christ. All of this life, everything in this life, is given to us by God's grace. Now, it might sound confusing. How are we going to get grace in the Old Testament? That's, a, that's an accusation, so some people have dichotomized, well, this is the mean God of the Old Testament, and this is the gracious God of the, of the, of the New Testament, and, and Jesus came so that God of the Old Testament no longer will be mad at us. And, and, and we, what we've seen throughout our study in Hosea how, is how stupid that is. Because grace flows through the Old Testament, I think, uh, even so much more, even in the New Testament. Even in our our story in Hosea. Hosea talks so much about judgment, and we just want to look at it and say, God, you're being so mean. You're not being being good. You're not being gracious. But remember the context. Remember the context in which these these judgments are being proclaimed to them. And number first thing is, is that those judgments haven't been done yet. God is telling them, this is what I'm going to do. Return to me. How is that not grace, a call to repentance? Thousands and thousands of years of unfaithfulness and abuse of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. They have rejected. And all God has done for Israel and as He's done for us, as He has given us grace. And through this judgment... This proclamation, this prophecy of judgment that God is extending grace to call them to repentance. So as we walk through this history lesson, I want us to see three lessons that we can learn from their history. Is that we, number one, is we are who we are by grace. We are who we are by grace. Maybe you could change this as I am what I am by grace. We have what we have by grace. That's number 2. And we will be what we will be by grace. So let's read our passage this morning starting in chapter 11 verse 12. Starting in Hosea chapter 11 verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is unfaithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah And will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought for his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. We're going to stop right there and we'll return to the text in a minute. We'll, just, we'll cover these point by point. So this is our first lesson that we can learn. is from Jacob. You can see Jacob is recalled there. Jacob is recalled there in verse 2 of, of chapter 12. And the lesson that is being learned or what's being told to us or shown to us is that Israel, which is eventually Jacob's name is changed to Israel, he says, you are like Jacob. You are like Jacob. The nation of Israel, you are paralleling the person Israel. You're you are paralleling the person Israel. And so Hosea takes us back all the way to the beginning of, of, of Jacob. And, and and you can see that in, in verse 3 there. All the way back to the back to the to the womb, where the story of, of, of Jacob begins, right? So back in, in Genesis chapter 25, there, there are two babies in the womb, in, in the womb of Rebekah, right? And Rebecca is married to to Isaac, and Isaac is the son of Abraham, right? And so here, there's these two babies, and these two babies are causing some massive commotion inside the womb of Rebecca, right? Pregnant ladies, been pregnant ladies before, you know the comforts and the pain that can take place when you're pregnant. And so there's two of them in there, and these two are uniquely fighting with each other. They are struggling with one another. And in fact, it got to the point where, where it made Rebecca so uncomfortable that she, she prayed to God, and she's like, God, what is, what is happening? Like, there's no ultrasounds that they can look at and see that these two are kicking each other and punching each other and things like that. That wasn't going down. They didn't have that back then. So she is, she's praying, God, what is, what is happening? What is the, the deal? And God graciously tells her, says, Rebecca, there's two boys in you. And they are going to be two nations. They will be two people and they will be divided. And they'll be so divided that the younger, the younger will serve the older. The younger will serve the older. And so here's Rebecca probably thinking from the beginning, oh man, our family's going to be in turmoil our family is going to be in turmoil. And this is what we see recalled for us from Genesis chapter 25 is that from the womb there's Jacob. And then there in verse 3 again talks about the the, the birth story when they're born. Here comes Esau. Esau was born first. And uh the the Bible's clear on the, the, the description of Esau. It's like he was he was. Uh, born with a with a bear suit on he was, he was a furry fella and he was born that way and as soon as he came out you can, you can even see here that 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 Jacob was holding on to the heel of his brother like oh no you don't i'm coming out with you i want to be first Because literally the name Jacob means he grasps he holds on to he, he, he grasps. He, he, he holds on to. What, what an appropriate name because it just doesn't describe Jacob's birth as he is striving and holding on to his, his brother as they were in competition with each other from the very beginning. But, but Jacob was known to be a person, especially in his younger age, to pursue ruthlessly to get ahead as if he was always grasping on to someone else to get ahead. So that he could achieve wealth, that he could achieve acceptance, that he could achieve power. He was grasping at anything that would get him ahead. Jacob, in his grasping, was a deceiver. He became known as a deceiver. As a, as a, as a deceiver, Genesis 27 talks about the, the, the trickery that he uses to trick his brother into giving him his birthright. And giving him his 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 birthright. Y'all remember that story? And then later on, after he tricks him into giving them the birthright, they probably know that he's not going to do it. And so Isaac, as he is old in age, he knows he's about to about to die, and he can't Isaac can't see anymore. He tells his he tells his oldest son to go out, go hunting, kill kill something, bring it back, and cook it for me, and, and let's eat together and Isaac knows that he's going to eat and with his son and then proclaim his blessing upon his upon his oldest son. Well, Rebecca finds this out. Rebecca goes to Jacob and tells Jacob, "Jacob, listen, this is what your dad's going to do. As your brothers out hunting, you, let's let's kill you go kill the two two goats. Let's bring them in. I'll prepare them for you and and we will use that to to trick your father into proclaiming the birthright upon you." And while you're at it, go get, go get the furriest coat you can find. Go get the you guys know what that means, right? So that if he touches his son, he'll say, Oh, Isaac. I, I mean, Esau. And you see Jacob deceiving his father to believe that he was Esau. In fact, and, and in fact, he even asks, as he's, you know, touching, touching supposedly Esau, he says, Esau, is that you? It doesn't sound like you. And Jacob, <clears throat> yeah, father, that's me. I'm Esau, the great mighty hunter I am. And he deceives his father. And now, now, now look back now to, to, uh, uh, to Hosea 11, verse 12. Look at that now. It says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Look at verse 1. They feed on the wind. They pursue the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria. Does, does Israel not sound like this young version of Jacob? Here's a lesson to be learned here. The question before us then, as we look at the life of young Jacob, we need to ask ourselves, is deceit the way forward? Is grasping the way forward, and I think the answer right here we see this that it says uh, the image of feeding on the wind tells us otherwise. Hello. Yeah, I bet Lydia pulled the plug. Yeah, she's she's out to destroy me. You guys, you guys keep your eye open. Um, yeah, yeah, we. Yeah, we, we need to put a top on her crib. Um, yeah. She loves me, I think. No, she's, she's great. Okay. Back to the story. So look at that. It tells us it feeds on the wind. What, what does that bring up to us in, in feeding of the wind? It means, means you can never be satisfied. It means that it's a, it's a fool's errand. I mean, if we saw someone jumping around trying to eat the wind as if it was snowing, we would call that person a fool. Probably wouldn't use fool. We would use the different words. But we got the same meaning. They would be foolish. Because we know what actually made Jacob great. What actually made Jacob great. What actually, who actually made Jacob triumph over Esau? Was it Rebekah? Was it Jacob? Was it the seat that made Jacob a great nation? No, it wasn't. And and this is the the, the lesson to be be learned here, is not to be the young Jacob. Now look at 12, 4, and 5. This is where Jacob met God at Bethel. This is when, after Jacob left his homeland... He went he was traveling to go be with his uncle and there he was going to go find a wife among those people and as he is there the Lord encounters Jacob the Lord comes to him in a dream right we've heard of Jacob's ladder this is the dream that he makes and God reassures his promises through Jacob to his people all Jacob has ever done is deceive and be ugly and be treacherous and lie. And God meets Jacob at Bethel. In fact, he calls that place Bethel. Jacob calls that place Bethel, meaning the house of God. This is the house of God. This is where God has, has, has met me. And so Hosea, as he's telling us here, he's saying, you are like your father Jacob. He says, you are, you are like you're full of deceit, you're constantly grasping, and yet God then indicts them. You see that back in verse 2. He sets charges, indictment, indictments against us, against him, and against Israel. Because Israel or Jacob did not become this great mighty nation Israel by grasping or deceit, but he only because of the grace of God. It has only been through the grace of God. In fact, the story continues. The story continues there because look at verse 4. It says, he strove with the angel and prevailed. This is now when Jacob is leaving the land of his his uncle and he has now his two wives when really it's a long story. He only wanted the one. He's got two wives now. He has to go back to his land. He has nowhere else to turn to. But he knows when he goes back to his land, he's going to have to face his brother, Esau. And Esau's always been a little bit stronger than him. And he knows that. And there's an angel that, that, that meets him there. It says the angel of the Lord. And he wrestles, like MMA wrestling, with this angel. And eventually, through the night... Jacob is able to subdue this angel, the angel of the Lord. He's able to subdue him and and say, bless me, bless me. It's not until the angel then like touched him in a special place that put his hip out of socket. But he wrestled with the Lord. In this darkest moment, he sought the blessing of God. And God was gracious to him. And God was, was so gracious to him. He strove with God. He wrestled with God. He wanted God's grace. He did not earn God's grace by subduing the Lord and forcing it to give it to Him because grace is a gift. The blessings of God is a, is a gift. We cannot, we not, cannot coerce God's gifts upon ourselves and God's blessing and God's grace but he fought for it. And so that leaves us with a question. How can that be? How do I fight for grace? And I think even more of a pressing question how did Jacob prevail over God? How did Jacob prevail over God? What, 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 what was he coming up to? What was he doing? Well here's what I came up with. These are going to make some of y'all feel a little awkward. The first one is this, is that God makes himself weak so that he can bless us. God makes himself weak so that he can bless us. Sounds backwards. Sounds awkward to say. But this is what God does for for, for Jacob. There cannot be any other explanation that our sovereign, all-powerful God makes himself weak so that we can be strong. In this moment of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, I think there's a moment, a picture in history that we see what God the Son would have to do on the cross. That God the Son was was stripped and humiliated, dehumanized and killed by sinful humanity. And why? So that he could bless us eternally. You see the, see the correlation in the story? So I think first there, God makes himself weak so that he could bless us. And I think the second answer to this question is that God makes us, makes us strong so that he can bless us. Look back at verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for, for your God. This is what this, what, this is what this means, this call in, in verse 6. It, sees, it means, by the grace of God, by His help, hold fast to love and justice. By grace, fight for more grace. I'm not talking necessarily salvation here, but, but no, we are to fight for grace. Fight for grace so that we can love more. Fight for grace so we can be righteous and, and justice and just. Fight for grace so that we can hold fast for the everlasting promises of, the, of a loving Father. This is the fight of faith that we wait and we trust continually for our God. To fight and to wrestle with God, there's, this, there's an urgency about it. It means we, we, we need it. We, we critically need His grace. And that's what Jacob did. He knew he needed it. He needed the blessing of God. He needed the the grace of God. And it's in those lowest and most desperate seasons of our life that God's grace becomes the sweetest. It becomes the sweetest. So we must be a people that, that fervently seek His grace and who are passionate about His grace. You know, often we feel cold in our faith, not passionate about the things of the Lord. We believe the gospel. We say we, we believe it, and we know that the gospel is amazing. We know that his grace is amazing. We know that. But sometimes it just doesn't feel that way. So what do we do? We fight for it. We fight for grace. We fight for the blessings of of the Lord. We pray. We we press into the Lord. We we pray to Him. We, We lay ourselves down at His feet. We submit ourselves to Him. And we ask for grace upon grace. And knowing that as we fight this fight for grace, that we're not just fighting against the Lord as we see here, but we also know that it is God who has fought for us. That it is God who has fought for us because He is empowering us. He is leading us because He wants us to have this deep, longing relationship with Him. He is pursuing us. Maybe He has brought you to those, those low moments so that you will look at His grace and fight for it. Because he needed it. So that we will long for Him more and pursue Him and love Him. Our lesson from this, is from this story is we don't want to be the, the young Jacob. We want to be the older Jacob who became Israel, who fought for grace. Because we are what we are by grace, and by grace alone. And our culture tells us that your identity is wrapped up in what you do. It's, that's what makes you are. So, work hard, pass all your exams, Be a, make it in business, climb the, climb the corporate ladder. Grasp. And what we see here is no, it is only by the grace of God that we are who we are. And it is only by His grace that we are what we are, and it is for His glory and for His glory alone. We fight for faithfulness, we fight for grace. Because this is the only thing that is meaningful and satisfying that we can ever come to defining ourselves. When we look at anything else in our lives to, to define ourselves, and we said in, in Ephesians, we identify as. If this is who we are, if we're, if we're anything else, those are all things that could fail. But what will never fail? The grace of God. It'll, it'll never fail. It'll never leave you longing. In fact, it will never leave you satisfied in a sense where you want to go somewhere else. It will always want you longing for more. That's why Jesus said, I am the living water. Come, drink from me and you'll never thirst again. Brothers and sisters, we must define ourselves in God's grace. Number two, we have what we have by God's grace. Let's look at verse 7 of chapter 12. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as the days of the appointed feasts. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, then they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are are like the stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. And Israel served for a wife. We talked about that story just a little bit earlier. And for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he occurred guilt through Baal and, and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images Idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them, the work of their craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mists, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt. You knew no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts. I will devour them like a lion and as a wild beast would rip them open more intense judgment we see here looking back of, to verse 8 of chapter 12 we see once again this, the posture of, of Israel we see the posture of, of Israel saying I'm rich I have, found, I have found for myself wealth I found wealth for, my, for, my, for myself so here's, here's Israel's posture Ephraim's posture which is Israel they're postured toward their, toward their stuff, everything that they have, the blessings of all, all the stuff that, that God has given them, all their riches, all of their, all of their cities, all of their, their crops, everything they have, all their prosperity. They say, Look what I've done. Look at my stuff. That's their posture. And after verse six, where, where Hosea calls the people to, to return to the Lord, to repent and to hold fast to love and justice. but just like the, the person Israel, just like the person Israel did, they repented turned, turned to the Lord, held fast to, to love and justice, but not the response of Israel, the nation. Their response was, "As I got this,, I, I, I earned this. I don't need God's help." Isn't this a reflection of of the the state of of the human heart? Even even the condition of us us today that's so prevalent in their culture because it it tells us, I have what I have because I am what I am. And I am a self-made person. I am a self-made man. I am a self-made woman. I have done these things. I have pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Why do I need God? That's the posture of our culture. And so the things of the Lord are foolish to the world. This is the attitude of of Israel. This is the attitude of Israel. But yet what we see in in verse 9 is that God has provided for the man Israel. as God has provided for the nation of Israel. He pulled the the family from, from Egypt, rescued them, after hundreds of years of slavery, God heard the cries of his people and brought them out and then graciously, mercifully, steadfast love led them to the promised land. He gave them a land flowing with, with milk and honey, which was inhabited by these Canaanites, and God drove them out. That's why it says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. Verse 12 is recalling the story of Jacob again. Not to get us confused to look back, but really to highlight the, 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 the lesson in history that we are to look at, and that's the, the story of, of Moses, the lesson from, from, from Moses in, in Egypt. And just as Jacob served uh, Laban in, in, in guarding the sheep, no longer is Israel Jacob there, but we are the sheep. Israel is the sheep, because this is what Moses does. Moses guards the sheep. He is the shepherd that God raised up, the prophet, as verse 13 says, to provide and to lead his people and to bring them into the, into the promised land. It was God who cared for them. It was God who rescued them. It was God who protected them. And it was only through his instrument, Moses. And you know, it might be the very reason why Moses' name isn't even mentioned here. It just says, prophet. Prophet. And it might be not mentioned there because it's to point to God. Because ultimately it wasn't Moses, it was the Lord. It was the Lord providing for them. And so Ephraim has become a bitter provocation, as verse 14 says. Has given bitter provocation. They have a blood guilt on them. And it's a blood guilt that must be paid. They sinned more and more. Chapter 13, verse 2. Their sin increased the more and more. They were creating idols and they had jobs and craftsmen all around this industry of idolatry. It was like it was a sport. Their sin became a a sport to them. And just like sin does, if not dealt with, if not killed, if not rooted out, it grows and it gets worse and it gets worse. And the worst thing back in verse uh, 12, verse 7, is this. It talks about the merchant. It talks about the merchant there. That word merchant in verse 7 of of chapter 12 literally means Canaanite. Israel became like the Canaanites. And that is so much worse than, than these other things because they were to be a people that was set apart by God. The greatest sin of Israel was the defaming of the holy name of God. That was their greatest of sin. So God says, I will make you dwell in tents. This is that Exodus reversal that we talked about in chapter nine. They will be a, a fleeting and fragile people, chapter 13, verse 3. Like an evaporating dew, like the like the chaff that blows in the wind or smoke that, that disappears. They are going to be devoured by the Lord. And the lesson here, we see from Moses, the lesson of Moses is that they forgot God, and they forgot God's grace in leading them, and the kindness of God in leading them. We see that in chapter thirteen, verse four it says, "But I am the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt. You knew no God but me. Besides me, there is no savior." It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, right, he provided and fed them, they became full, right? They became, they became satisfied. Their needs were being, being met by, by the Lord. Their hearts were, were lifted up. They were encouraged. They were of good spirit, and they were in prosperity. And then in step three, what happens? And they forgot me. You you know what that's like. This is kind of what I was thinking when it comes to that. It's it's like the, the, the kid on Christmas opens up their presents and they say, "That's it," or they say, "Or they say I didn't want that." None of, none of you parents have ever experienced that before, right? It just kind of makes you like, "What?" And they forgot him. And the grace that God has so given to them, they have forgotten. Do we see how, how scary and easy it is for us in our prosperity and in our blessing to forget the Lord. It is so easy. We, have, we are a people of, of great prosperity. God has given us so many blessings. And when we can stand here all day long and talk about all the great gifts that, that God has, has given us. But in those great gifts, they are not meant for us to to be self-confident and self-reliant, but they're only meant to be rolled up in our hearts and our minds to give glory to God and to be used for the glory of God. And when we don't have that perspective, when we don't have that that mindset, that gratitude then lies on our hearts. It comes back down down on, on us. And we start to think like Israel. I've earned it I deserve that retirement I, I, des- I deserve that it's mine brothers and sisters that is what our culture teaches but what God says to us and through his, through his word he says I'm the one who have given you things I am the one who has blessed you I am the one who has given you grace. All that you have has been given by my grace. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest and biggest idols of America today is our stuff. Our idols of prosperity we live for. And the futility of it, it all ends up in the same place the dump. And all ends up in the same place. All the things we are trying to achieve in this world and to buy, it all ends up in the same place. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure grace. Treasure the grace of God. And the gift of God and His grace. And our third lesson from history. So we look back to the kings of Israel. We will be what we will be by grace. Looking now at chapter 13, verse 9, it says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I give. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath from my king Saul. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of, his childbirth, of childbirth come before him. But he is an unwise son, that at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom him from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where is your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed into pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Judgment we have heard before, but yet is still just as striking. The Lord is holy. The Lord is holy. So we see the recall to us again, that a third time in history, was about their king. So God set before the people and put them in the promised land. And at that time, God was their king. God was to be their their ruler. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And then over time, they eventually asked for a king. They wanted to be like the nations. They wanted to have a a king just like everyone else had. And their desire for this king was was a physical embodiment of Israel's rejection of God as their king. They rejected God's kingship. And they rejected God's kingship for human kingship. They wanted someone who would who would who would be there, someone that they, they could they can point to and say, see that's my king. He protects me. He he'll take care of me. When the Syrians come he's got it. He got it. If the Egyptians try to rise against us, he's got it for me. I'm good. And the problem, just like anything else, when we trade the things of God, the provision of God, the authority of God, for anything of human provision, human authority, guess what? There will always be disappointment. A human king cannot protect you, especially, as this passage tells us, when God himself is your enemy. When God himself is coming up against you to judge you. I mean, this is, this is kind of what it reminds me of so many places and so many people that, that want to trade a, a God-centered, a Christ-centered authority, a Christ-centered gospel for a man-made, a man-centered gospel. There's, there's no satisfaction there. that we'll, ne- we'll never find satisfaction in what we can conjure up in ourselves to, to save ourselves. There will always be disappointment. Only our Savior is Jesus Christ will we find satisfaction. He is our King and our only King and our ruler. There is no rescue. There is no salvation in any other human authority. I think we see that in our culture more today than I ever remember, and my life's short. People are looking for salvation, worth, and government. And who, they, and who they vote for, or who they, they tout on on social media, or on the meet whatever it is. It's gotten to the point where families are being split apart. Churches are being split apart. Denominations are being split apart over these issues. Their savior is not the government. It is not in who we will vote for. They will never lead us to Zion. It's only in Christ. There's salvation in no other name. In heaven or below. There's none. The lesson that we can learn from history here is that we will be what we will be by God's grace. Our culture points to something completely opposite once again telling us your, your future is safe if, if, you, if we have the, the right system in, in, in government, whether it's complete freedom, I can do whatever I want, or the government's going to be my daddy. Whatever it is, right? It could, it could be that. Or maybe it's if I work hard enough, if I save hard enough, if I make the right decisions, if I eat right, and if I exercise enough, if I have the right insurance, if I have the right investments, then I'm going to be safe. A new one is now, as if, if, our, if, if our environment is protected in the right way. Then our future will be finally saved, and it will be secure. And, and, and all of these things are so right, they're good. These are things we should seek for, and these are wise things. I'm certainly not condoning these as, as negative, I'm not saying that. But when they become what we are looking for as our hope, if we're finding our, 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 our God in this, this little idol in these particular things, we are going to be left disappointed, dissatisfied. I mean, look at history. How many families where you had a patriarch in the family build empires of wealth? I mean, empires of wealth and companies and businesses. And what is it, two generations later? They have to sell the thing because of massive debt? That's all it really takes It's two generations later. And, and these empires that these men have poured into, it takes two generations later and it can fail. The drive isn't there. The same drive isn't there. They don't last. The same desires, the same drive isn't there. You see, what we will be does not secure us. Our savviness to prepare for our future is not what what secures us and gives us hope for the future. Our hope for the future. We will be what we will be only by God's grace. So let me ask. What is it then that gives us confidence for the future? What What is your hope what, what is the things that we should be longing for? What is it? Is it the American dream? Does your answers to the questions now to that I've just been asking. They, they will raise up in your heart. They will show you what you are treasuring, what you are putting your hope in. Do they line up with God's grace? Only God can, can secure our future. Only the Lord can, sir, can secure our hope. By His grace He has done so in His Son Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want everybody to turn with me. it'll be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, look at our 15. Look at verse 53. And as you do that, I'm going to read Hosea four thirteen, fourteen, 14, and I'm going to show you the parallel that's taking place here. He says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Shehol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where is your plagues? O Shehol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That's verse 14 of chapter 13 of Hosea. Now look at 1 Corinthians 15. This shows us where our hope is, how our hope has been secured. Look at verse 53. It says, For this perishable body must, be put, must put on the imperishable. And this, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the more, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. This is our quote from Hosea 13:14. Death is swallowed up in victory. Actually, that's from Isaiah. This is from Hosea. Verse, verse 55, "O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting?" Verse 56, "The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law." But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, First Corinthians has given us this evidence and defense of the resurrection of our Savior. And then leading us to to not only its application, but its treasure and its joy and its and its hope of, of as if you are in Christ, if you're identified in Jesus, this is what we have to look forward to. Where the, where the mortal puts on immortality, where the perishable is stripped away, and we're given the imperishable. Just as Christ. And what Paul does for us here is he gives us this this fuller understanding of of, of chapter 13, verse 14. So the question is asked in Hosea, that rhetorical question, right? The rhetorical question. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the answer to the the rhetorical question of that is nowhere. It's nowhere. Where is death's victory? Where is death's sting? It's, It's nowhere. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. But Paul drives it further home for us. And he and he then answers the question for us. In verse 56. And, and what is the sting of death? He says in verse 56 that it is sin. The sting of death is sin. Now that seems surprising. That seems surprising because, because shouldn't death, shouldn't death be the sting of sin? Because doesn't sin lead to death? But here, sin is the sting of death. Sin is the sting of death. And here's the point. The point is this, is that we all will die. Good news. Good news. The sobering reality is we will all face death. That is the reality. It's something we we have to come to grips with. But there is a greater death. There is a greater death than our physical death. There is a greater death to fear than our physical death. And that is our spiritual death. This spiritual death is an eternal separation from God in hell. The sting of death, the sting of death that follows is from sin is the death that leads to eternal death. That's the point. But for Christians, but for Christians, our sin, the sting of death, as we've been saying throughout Hosea, proclaiming throughout Hosea, that this sting of death has been dealt with. This, this sting of, of death will be, has been dealt with. This same chapter in, in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 3, Paul says this, he says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures. So, so all of the blood guilt that was due to us as it was dealt with, with for Israel and for Ephraim, all of this sin has been perfectly atoned for. The sin that we have committed, where we deserved the death of deaths, has been paid for through the blood of Christ. And therefore fulfills this promise in, in Hosea 13, that God will redeem them from death. Death is crushed to death by death. Now what does that mean? Death? Right? Spiritual death? has been crushed to death, I meaning it's been killed, through death, through the death of Christ. Death has been crushed to death, and then maybe this sounds like a song lyric we sing: death's been crushed to death, and now life is now mine to live. Right? Now life is mine to, to, to live. We live by grace now and putting our hope in His future grace that has been secured for us in Christ. Death has been completely disarmed. You realize that we can face our physical deaths now knowing that the spiritual death, the sting of death, has been completely disarmed. The greatest enemy has been, uh, the greatest uh, weapon of our enemy has been completely destroyed by our Savior. And just as, God, just as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. And later, I think it's in verse 57, he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that victory, God just kind of wraps it up and he just hands it to you. and says, here you go. You're victorious because Christ is victorious. We are victorious because Christ is victorious. He's handed it to us. Here it is. Your future is secure. Yes, you may face death. Yes, you may face cancer. Yes, you may face car wrecks. Yes, you may face persecution. Yes, you may face whatever it may come your way, fire, whatever it is. But know this, that if you are in Christ, the sting of death has been paid for completely, fully in Christ. Death has been put to death And now life is mine to live. And it only is through Christ and by His grace. We will be what we will be only by His grace. We have only one place to stand and that is in grace. Everything that we do is by by grace. And so there's two roads that we've presented here. There's the way of Israel, and there's the way of Christ. The way of Christ, death has been defeated, victory is now yours in Christ by grace through faith. Or the road of Israel, which is tragic. Go back and look at verses 15 and 16. That's the tragic separation of not knowing Christ not following Christ, not submitting to the Lordship of Christ, and living by grace. There's two roads that are presented. Two ways to respond. Brothers and sisters, we have been given so much grace. Back to John chapter 1, verse 16. Grace upon grace. If I can do anything this morning, I want, you, I want to encourage you to marvel in it. I want you to, to love it. I want you to fight for it. I want you to depend upon it. I want you to press into it. I want you to freely give it to others and extend it and to share it. Because grace has been given to us. Oh, such marvelous grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May it have its full effect now for your glory and for our joy. And that Christ would be exalted. In Jesus' name.